Episode number 44, and I am Michael Howard, the founder and CEO of Musea. For this episode, I had the chance to talk with international photographer uh, Justin Mott. Uh, he works out of Vietnam. Uh, but before we get to our conversation, I want to mention a couple things just super fast. Um, one, I just want to uh, just say thank you to everybody that came to the gathering in New York City a couple weeks ago. Uh, I could not have asked for a better three days. Uh, for being the first ever gathering, I felt like uh, it went uh, great. I felt like it even exceeded my expectations to a large degree, um, and I learned a lot. And so I cannot wait for the Seattle gathering coming up uh, in July. And so uh, if you missed the New York gathering, but you're considering coming to the Seattle one, or if you live on the West Coast, and it's just more convenient for you, um, please, please come. It's going to be amazing. Uh, Kirk Maston's teaching, uh, Ryan Muirhead, and uh, Colin Jacob from uh, Nordica uh, Photography. Uh, it's going to be July 16th, 17th, and 18th. Um, and uh, it's actually going to the studio we're actually going to be at is um, actually in Tacoma. Um, so, uh, but it's still up there in the in the northeast, right by Seattle. Uh, it's just a quick, easy bus ride from um, the Seattle uh, Tacoma Airport uh, if you're flying in. So uh, it's still very easy to get to, and there's some uh, free public transportation up there. So that's awesome. Um, a little bit different for the Seattle gathering is we actually have early bird ticket rates, and um, so the early bird rates end on May 1st. So if you're considering going, please consider buying um, early to save yourself a little bit of money. Um, and you can get those tickets at museagathering.com. Uh, also, um, with our online proofing solution, uh, the Musea store, we've got um, some new features coming up this month. Uh, we've got a couple small tweaks that hopefully will be uh, released this week, which I'm really, really excited about, uh, just to improve the store and make it a little more efficient. And then also, we've got a big, massive feature uh, that's going to be released, hopefully, um, in a couple weeks. And it's something that no other online proofing system has and something I'm really, really pumped about. Um, and so you'll learn more about that uh, coming up uh, on the blog and um, through some emails uh, right when we get ready to release that. So just be on the lookout for that. Also, I just want to let everybody know that we, so far through the Musea store, uh, all your online sales have uh, helped us uh, give enough money to water.org that 27 people uh, will receive clean water for life. So thank you so much for using the store with um, your businesses, and I just appreciate uh, your support and the work that you're doing to change uh, real lives out there in the world. So uh, that's it for the announcements. Yeah, with this uh, interview with Justin Mott, um, he's an amazing photographer. He, he shoots a lot in um, of these documentary projects, but they're kind of all over the, the emotional scale. But he even does like these weddings, so he does like these really kind of celebratory moments in life, and then he also does some of these uh, really hard, gut-wrenching type stories. Um, 
But he's been published in uh, Newsweek and Time and Forbes magazine and Cutting Nest Traveler uh, and National Geographic Traveler, Business Week, and just a whole slew uh, of magazines. Um, he does some projects on Agent Orange that we talk about. Uh, we talk about some of the challenges he has of working uh, overseas in Vietnam. Uh, and he also gives some really great advice uh, on how photographers can just tell better stories in general. So uh, grab a cup of coffee. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Well, Justin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, how are you doing today? Excellent. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, well, everything, uh, everyone, the first question I always ask everybody is I really just really want to kind of get into your background okay. and learn more about just how you got into photography and especially with you and your story and how you got all the way over into Vietnam. So. Sure. Uh, I'll try to keep it kind of short, but <laughs> it's a long story. Um, yeah. I, started, uh, I started studying photojournalism at San Francisco State University. Um, I was studying to be a newspaper photographer. Um, then I, took, I did a workshop in Cambodia. I took a couple months off from, from bartending in San Francisco and from school, and I went to go travel throughout Southeast Asia. Uh, I was a couple years into school, so I took my camera and wanted to do a couple stories, and, and I heard about a... I got lucky, actually. I, I met someone. I was I was actually waiting tables to save money to come out uh, on this trip out here, and I met someone who worked for, for Time Magazine, and I was waiting on them, and she said, oh, if you ever come into New York, you should talk to my husband, and I could tell they were just being sort of courteous, but <laughs> I, I took them up on the offer. I went to New York, and I met the guy. had a horrible portfolio. He was the art director. Uh, he introduced me to the photo editor, who just happened to be coming back from lunch, he, he, we thought we were going to miss each other, and, and we didn't. She just was coming off the elevator while I was about to go down, and he was apologizing that she wasn't there. And then, you know, was, she was very polite. She looked at my work. I had horrible pictures of foliage, and I'm telling her I wanted to be a photojournalist looking at pictures from James Noctway hanging on, on the walls of time. And she politely looked at my portfolio, and, he, you know, I needed to do some work, I needed to do some stuff told me kind of what stories to stay away from in Southeast Asia, some of which she's seen two times. She recommended to, to look into the work of uh, Seven, the, the uh, agency. So I started looking at uh, a lot of the photographers from Seven and their work, and I found a workshop in Cambodia with Gary Knight and sort of changed the way I thought about photography. I thought it uh, made me want to get into documentary photography a lot uh, and get away from newspaper photography. And I got really passionate about it. I did a couple stories while I was out here. And went back to school, but just found myself gravitating back towards Vietnam and to Cambodia. And I moved back out here thinking I'd be here for a couple of months, and now I'm here seven years later. <laughs> wow. Um, 
I'm interested in your in the the seven workshop and your experience there because I I've had uh, Ben Christman. I don't know if you know who he is. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he, he shot a wedding. I was just that. Oh, okay. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. He was on the podcast um, a couple months ago in January, and he had taken a, a, a workshop with the Seven Agency, and it was like changed everything for him as well. So it seems like that was also a very pivotal pivotal point in your career. So I just wondered it what it was like that really affected you. In there. It was well. It was a couple things. It was I was decent at school compared to my peers, and then when I went to the workshop, I realized that I was the worst one in the workshop. There was ten <laughs> of us. I was easily the worst one. I had, I was like the token. What they joked is the token American. Every year, someone shows up with the, you know, seventy to two hundred, two camera bodies, every possible lens, and Gary made me rethink my my, my way of storytelling and my my choice of equipment. And you know, if I wanted to tell stories. Why not try a fixed lens? And so that was sort of a nice, a, a, a nice introduction to uh, to a new way of thinking about photography. So I, you know, I tried with a, just a thirty-five to shoot. What I learned during that workshop is I, I didn't produce anything good at all. It was horrible, but I, I learned that I need I had a lot of work to do. And, and Gary's just so smart about talking about photography, and he was just he's always been helpful since that workshop in my career. He got my first story published in in Newsweek because he he let me use his name in a subject line to the to the photo editor, but the, 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 yeah, to spend time on a story. In San Francisco, we, we learned a little bit about storytelling, but we were, we were really concerned about having a, a well-rounded portfolio, and it was, it was you had to have spot news, you had to have uh, a feature, you had to have a sports feature, you had to have sports action. It was, it was constantly trying to build a portfolio about nailing all those different categories, and when I went to Gary's workshop, it was just about telling a story and finding something you're interested in, and you know, uh, uh, developing a narrative and finding your style to tell a story. And I've never, I was never really taught that in school. So, I mean, that was just one small part of six other categories we had to fulfill in school. But I really, I, I really liked that. I really spent, like spending time on, with people and getting to know a story. And, and so after that, yeah, I was, I was hooked. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we'll definitely get into talking about some of that, like, storytelling element a little bit later. But, um, I'm interested, like, I don't know, because, like, if anytime anybody travels, especially, like, if I've traveled or anybody really travels, I feel like, you know, I'm assuming that, like, when you first moved overseas, did you struggle with taking kind of these, like, very typical kind of outsider tourist type stuff? And if so, like, how did you get past that? Well, I did, but I, right when I landed, we started the workshop in Cambodia, so it was one of the first times I really spent time in another country with my camera doing doing work and so yeah I came back with all these pictures that I thought were so good and in my mind I was like oh, ready for the pat in the back from Gary and it, it was just like so disappointed he's like ah these are all I mean because that's exactly looking back that's, that's exactly what I was doing I was just taking like very cliche travel pictures um, and yeah and, and I, I was looking at what everyone else was doing and I thought wow I mean so many some of the other photographers were were so much more advanced, and they were they were building a story. They were capturing moments, and and I just didn't have any of that. So, yeah, it was <laughs> it's definitely uh, I, right when I started. It was hard to get out of that, and it's you know sometimes it's you have like for a while it was hard to to sort of get rid of that because your mind as soon as you see something you you think is a good photo, you want to go to it and just take it. And then since that workshop, I've learned to to really slow down. Mm. I really think about why I'm shooting something from a certain angle and, and what I'm trying to capture and what I'm trying to say with each picture. Yeah. Um, how? I mean, how does that... I'm trying to think of how to frame this. Um, 
because I was reading your blog and you, in some of the stuff you'd written, you're talking about this idea of slowing down and just being very thoughtful and obviously like what you're taking and why you're taking it and the motivations behind it and all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you balance that, like a, a thoughtfulness, especially, but also with kind of this kind of you need to react really quick uh, in the moment type of a thing? Sure. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, because I was thinking like there's sometimes I don't think you can you would be able to think through everything about like why am I taking this picture and I don't know and you know and you just kind of yeah. have to go with it. So. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate where I don't do uh, by choice. I don't do a lot of of spot news. And in, in Vietnam, there's not a ton of spot news, and and you're sort of hopefully I'm not being uh, wiretapped right now, but hopefully <laughs> there, there's uh, there you know there is a little bit of paranoia here with that. You, you know certain things not to cover here because so, you don't want to get kicked out of the country. So <laughs> there are some certain topics like you know you don't cover protests, and there's not a lot of protests, and there's no there's you know there's no conflict right now in Vietnam, and so I don't cover a lot of that kind of stuff, so, yeah, I mean, with moments you have to react even if you're telling a story, but I don't have to have, like, those, every once in a while I'll cover a, a big event or or aftermath of something, but, yeah, I think those kind of things allow you to slow down a little bit and think, or at least you sort of, if you come from, if you're doing a lot of stories and you don't, I'm not shooting for wires often either, so if I'm shooting something for the New York Times, my editor gives me time to slow down. He can pull the wire shot. I mean, I, I was afraid of that in the beginning. I had to balance that because I thought, okay, I need the action shot. I need that one tell-all shot. But then as I grew comfortable with one of my one of my editors who, I was new at the time, but he was so nice. I mean, he sent me an email saying, don't worry about that, the shot. You know, tell me a little bit of a story. I want you to do something different. And and ever since he allowed me to do that, I, I've and I've been able to do that on more assignments that once the editor trusted you. I mean, you can't always, because a lot of times as a freelancer in Vietnam, you're working for someone for the first time, but and then maybe only once a year, so you don't get to know editors very well. But the relationship with the New York Times is a little bit different, so I was I was able to do that. And it, it suited my style, so it was great. <laughs> yeah. So I'm curious why Vietnam, because it seems like you could have gone anywhere. You seem to like really ambitious, you know? So why did you land yeah. there? I was, and now I'm stuck here. I'm not ambitious. And no, I'm <laughs> <laughs> right, well, this is where I started in Cambodia, and I was telling, I was doing a couple stories there, and then I was just my trip. I had planned to just sort of uh, backpack around Southeast Asia, so Vietnam became the the place I spent the most time. And I was going from city to city, and and I actually settled in Hanoi for about a month. I met a group of Vietnamese photographers who were very nice to me. They showed me around, took me on all these great little photo trips. It was just a different atmosphere than than school, and I also did the Eddie Adams workshop and and my school as well, which I love those two things. But they're very competitive, and it wasn't the sort of sharing atmosphere that it was in the beginning. But as as we get closer to graduation, and as as a lot of the students get closer to becoming professionals, it was it was a competitiveness that I didn't really like that much. It was a little bit of mm-hmm. cutthroat. And then when I came to Vietnam, it was a sort of it was really nice. It wasn't like oh, you can't tell someone or help someone with a story because you're threatened that they're going to steal it. It was just more of, hey, let's look at each other's pictures, let's talk about it, let's talk about story ideas. And, and it was a nice atmosphere, and I really liked that, especially for for a documentary. Hmm. It was interesting that, so what lured you there is more of the, the photographers, not necessarily like the country itself and the culture, do you feel well, like? Well, right, right in the beginning, what, why I stayed in Hanoi was, was yeah. because of that. I met this group of people because I was bouncing around so much, and... You know, I think when you travel as a backpacker, you can live 
you can live a foreigner. You can come to the country without really being here. And I, I found myself, when I stayed back an extra day somewhere by myself, I would start to learn more things. But, yeah, I mean, the reason I stayed in Hanoi for that extra month instead of just going a few days or doing, like, what the standard trip is, like three days here, four days here, was was because I did meet this group of guys that took me on these on these great trips, and they had a great community. And, yeah, I mean, I came here initially because I worked with a guy who, funny enough, he used to, he was a, he was a veteran in the war. We bartended together. We used to ride the bus home. And he used to talk about Vietnam and how much he loved it there and how much, like, he would come back after the war and he used to cut out articles uh, from the New York Times and, 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 and hand them to me because he was a New Yorker. And so he'd cut out articles about Vietnam and, like, where I should go and where I should travel. And so he sort of got me intrigued about the country. And then once I got here, yeah, I loved it. I loved my whole travel experience here. But Hanoi was, it was for the photographers that got me to, to, to hang around for a bit longer. Wow, and then I got into the stories. Yeah. Um, before, yeah, I definitely want to get into your stories. One question I have before we get into those, though, is kind of maybe just a logistical issue of like, because I don't, everybody I've had a on the podcast, I think everybody's been in the states for the most part. Um, I haven't had anybody that's over in Southeast Asia and works there full time. So I'm just curious kind of what are some of the logistical challenges that you have to deal with that people maybe in the States, you know, don't have to deal with on a regular basis? Um, yeah, it's a good question. You're, you're dealing with, uh, you're traveling to a lot of countries, right? I think a lot of times in the U.S. You're, you're, you're not working outside of the U.S. if you're based there. I mean, some photographers are, but I think uh, with here I could be going to Thailand one day and Cambodia another day. So language is a factor. So you have to always have a fixer in each country that you can really trust to, to be able to get you the access you need and to be able to translate and look after you too when you're when you're on a shoot mm-hmm. uh and so through the years i've been lucky to work with some great writers who have been here a lot longer than i have so they've introduced me to these people and and yeah i mean there's such a big part of every story that you do that's the biggest thing is is you know when you when i first went to uh to uh, one of my first stories was uh malaysia that wasn't a problem but then i had to go to indonesia and language became a little bit of a problem and Vietnam, I always had friends already here, but yeah, it, it was always finding a good a good picture that you can trust and that knows how to get you access to things and, and knows what you're looking for. That's huge. That's something maybe you don't think of in the U.S. so much. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, I mean, because some of your work is just, yeah, obviously is like U.S. based, you know, the New York Times and different things like that, but mm-hmm. do you also get hired by companies that are, you know, local to the region there? And so... It seems like some of the stuff I was reading about is just their how they deal with photography and just paying you and stuff is just different, you know. <laughs> Way different. <laughs> yeah. Uh, can you talk talk about those kind of challenges that you run? Sure. Across? Well, because I also do commercial photography, so I, I, we've we've come up with our brand for commercial photography in Southeast Asia, and so I used to even when I started that, it was mostly for foreign companies that had businesses in Vietnam. So if we shot for a hotel. Maybe we're dealing with the, the headquarters in New York. So it, it still was the same sort of process. But now, you know, the market, Vietnam, is, is a growing market. There's tons of businesses here. So we have been working more with Vietnamese companies. So from the editorial side, no, I don't work with any Vietnamese magazines. Not too often because it's it's a different world. I mean, you Vietnam editorial stuff, they won't, like photographers give away their work here because they just want to be published. Uh, like fashion, a lot of them, they just want to shoot models. So they, they, they will do the shoot for nothing. Yeah. Or they'll do the shoot in exchange for a write-up about your business. Or, and so it, that's, that's, 
that's difficult. And the ownership of images is difficult here. Vietnamese don't think of images as, they think you shot them, they should own everything and have everything. They don't want to pay extra for that. So that's an issue. So finding, and they don't want to pay Western rates. So it's a weird balance for, for us here. Our business, that's one of the biggest challenges is we, we can't get away with charging what we charge in the U.S., but I can't afford to charge what they want you to pay. So you're charging less and they're paying more. So it's a weird, <laughs> it's a tough balance. I mean, yeah. but what, but, but there is, there is a change. And if, like the photographers that are patient that have stayed out here and, and I think a lot of photographers, you know, we, we tend to be a, a bitchy community a little bit online. I like to talk. <laughs> Can I swear or should I not swear? Yeah, uh, whatever. <laughs> well, you know, I, I think uh, we like to talk shit and it's good. And it, it sort of creates awareness about like, oh, what we should do for our contracts or whatnot. But, you know, you, you have to educate the, the client here. But you, if you do it in a condescending way, you're not going to get the job. Right. So it's a, it's a fine balance. I mean, I've had funny experiences where I, I shot for a Vietnamese oil company and I almost lost the second half of a job because the Vietnamese guy told told the, the the marketing person that I didn't have a, a nicer camera, that my <laughs> camera was, because I had tape on my camera. It was a Canon uh, 5D Mark II, and he had a he had a Hasselblad with a digital back, so his was like a $40,000 camera, and I didn't yell at my assistant. I just talked to him nicely. He had four assistants, and he was shooting like a tiny job. You know, anytime you shoot with another photographer on a job, it's sort of awkward, but yeah. so he tried to steal the second half of my job, whereas... In the U.S., that wouldn't happen off of that and off of something as, as ridiculous as his camera was nicer. But I had to put a, a suit on and go to this meeting back in Hanoi that, like the, the, the day we got back. Wow. It was ridiculous. I mean, we still won the job. We still got the rest of the job. But I had to prove myself after I had already won the job. Right. The second time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just odd. It's just part of, part of life here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like you mean the forty thousand dollar camera doesn't take better pictures? Like I don't understand. <laughs> well, that's what. And, and there's a you know there is there is a, a kickback system here too. So mm. when you're in the you're in the U.S., the marketing person, yeah, okay. I mean, I'm sure it happens with friends and and they they, they go with the people they like, but it's not based on, hey, I'm hiring you and you're gonna. It's a ten thousand dollar job. You're gonna give me two thousand. It doesn't happen. But the the, the the problem the reason it happens here is because. The, that's how a lot of jobs are here. It's it's what it's their salary isn't isn't great. Say it's I don't want to uh, say it's okay to be corrupt, but you see why it happens, you know. So the marketing person hires a photographer for the job that's going to give him the most money back, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. So they don't want to work with foreigners a lot because, or the, in the past, again, it's changing rapidly, but because they don't, they know that our business culture isn't to do that. <laughs> so it's weird. Wow. Wow. Uh-huh. Um. Let's get into your work a little bit, um, which you have a lot, <laughs> by the yeah, way. You have, you have to be diverse in, in Asia. <laughs> um, so, but I definitely want to start with uh, your editorial stuff, and we can just kind of go through some of the projects. Um, and I just basically just start with, like, the legacy of, of horror projects. Um, and so I'd love to know what that's about and sure. how you got started and all that stuff. Sure, I, I was looking for a story to do while I was out while I was out here. So a little bit of research before I came on this trip, and then I, I read. Uh, uh, I was looking through. I was at Borders in San Francisco and looking through uh, Philip Jones Griffith's pictures about Agent Orange, and I didn't know anything about Agent Orange. Actually, I just sort of heard about it, but I didn't really know what what was. I, I didn't know anything about it really. Just and then I came here and and I asked a friend of mine to take me around to a few orphanages, and I just I just thought how I mean I. I it was horrible what I saw. I mean, some of the deformities on these children and, and physical and mental and and then some of the conditions they were living in. But 
And so I just, at the time, it was, the, that was, I would say, 2006 or 2007, I think. It, multimedia was big. So we're learning multimedia at school. So I wanted to, you know, I was afraid of telling, I knew I couldn't tell a story as well as Philip Jones Griffith. So I wanted to, I thought, well, I'll do it a different way. I'll do a multimedia story. And, and the first thing that captivated me about the place was that you could hear the children. You could hear the, the, the screaming coming from the rooms before you even entered from, you know, as you, as you approached them. So I, I tried to make a multimedia piece and work we worked on that story I stayed up at the my friend helped me arrange where I could get access and just stay at the center uh, right next to the center because a few hours from Hanoi so I just stayed there for for a week and then I went back up again and I, I tried I tried to tell a tell the story about the place I really just tried to show how horrible it is and because it was I think a lot of people I had some people sort of critique and say well you know you only showed the you didn't show the nurturing part, and you didn't show the you know the kids hanging out and playing with each other, and you didn't sh- the, the sound and and but the thing is is that it, it, the, that didn't exist. So I was fair to the subject. It wasn't like that. The kids weren't they were separated. It was a horrible place. It, the the women there and try not to judge it, but the women there they were just there to take after the kids' basic needs. There, there isn't a nurturing level there. As much as I wanted there to be one, there wasn't. Uh, the women washed the kids, they fed the kids, and then they just went back to their regular lives. There was no moments of, of a, you know, of, or very, very rare, there's a moment of, uh, between the caretakers and the children. They're just basically left to, to, to sit there and just stare into space all day. Mm. And so the place was so overwhelming and so horrible, so I, I just, I tried to, to just tell it exactly how it was. And hopefully yeah. succeeded. Yeah. I mean, they're ridiculously powerful. Um, I mean, they're hard to look at, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I wanted it to be hard to look at, and I wanted it to be hard to listen to. I think the audio was what we, we uh, is some of the bad feedback I got, but I, I was okay with that because people say, well, it's really hard to look at. Like, it's not supposed to be good. To, it's not supposed to be easy to look at, and it's not supposed to be easy to listen to because it wasn't, and it isn't. <laughs> yeah. Um, in, inform me a little bit about kind of Agent Orange and that. So these are kids where their fathers are... Family members were so, some. How's that work? Yeah, now it's down to now it's at a third generation. So it's okay. their grandfathers fought in the war, and and their parents were maybe born or with and with deformities, and sometimes not, and it just keeps getting passed down and passed down. And now the U.S. is 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 U.S. and Vietnam have a lot of different programs. They're trying to clean up Central Vietnam, where a lot of the chemicals were were, were sprayed. But yeah, I, I think it's bare minimum happening right now. I think the U.S. is putting a little bit of money into it, but not a lot. It's also a, a, a fascinating topic, too. I mean, I was in San Francisco, just wanted to check out a, a meeting. This was a, a delegation from Vietnam of Victims of Asian Orange, and it was such a strange dynamic because the the southern Vietnamese soldiers who left, they really still have a big issue with Vietnam and, and can't judge that. But being at a meeting and seeing the, the former U.S. soldiers and former North soldiers who fought against each other you know, talking about Agent Orange, talking about compensation for, for Agent Orange, and then the southern Vietnamese arguing against them and saying that it doesn't exist and it, that, that the, the Vietnamese made this up and that there is no link to this. Really bizarre. I mean, you take two sides that fought against each other, now now on the same side arguing against the South because the southern Vietnamese have so much animosity still towards the Vietnamese government in power. So, I mean, I, I've been to meetings where a guy, a guy said to me, I don't believe that. I said, I was there. I looked at, I, I've seen these children and he still didn't, just didn't want to believe it. Mm. He thinks, he thinks it's a, a propaganda from the Vietnamese government. Wow. 
So it actually, so it's like, it it's passed down genetically. Then it's not just like a, it's a, not a one-off thing where like the grandfather had it and then he died and it's that ends it. It's actually he passes it in. On, yeah, because right? also, uh, yeah, and also a lot of the chemicals are in are in the water system there. So uh, you know, people and 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 the food and and so yeah, it's horrible. <laughs> wow. Okay. So they're still getting it even just through, yeah, consumption of yeah. everything. Yeah. Wow. I don't. I think I would love to know. Um, when you're doing a project, something like that, um, how you can mentally, I guess, stay strong through that? Because I know a lot of a lot of us, a lot of photographers, we don't, especially the ones here in the states, we don't shoot that stuff. You know. Yeah. Um, so how? I mean, how did you when you were in there? I mean, especially when you were there for like a a week, I guess. I mean, how did you, do you have any, like, emotional breakdowns or anything? Because I would imagine it would be very taxing. Yeah, definitely. I, I think I think that, the you know, it's weird. I think as a photographer, you train so much when uh, when school and through assignments is to just go in and shoot. And, and yeah, you're thinking, but you're, you're also sort of, like, you have, like, a mental Rolodex of, like, okay, light's good there. I'm going to gravitate there. This is a moment. And there's so many things going on in your brain that you're you're not thinking about that. And then where it hits you or where it hits me is when you're going back through and you're looking at the edit and you're looking through the pictures and it's like that's when it just becomes it, it doesn't become real for me sometimes when I'm actually shooting it becomes real when I'm looking at the pictures on my computer and I, I still have those moments because I, I you know you always have to look at your own work because you're you're updating your website you're moving this around or, or and, and so those images stay with you forever um Yes, and I definitely did. Even while while I was there, you'd go home, I'd go back to my hotel. It was a tiny little hotel, and I, yeah, I mean, I broke down. I I went there early one morning because they kept telling me, "Oh, you can't come before eight o'clock." And I thought to myself, "Well, bullshit." I know Vietnam; everyone gets up really early. The, the, <laughs> everyone's ready to go at six o'clock. So I thought they must tr- they must be trying to hide something. So one day I showed up at seven or a little bit before seven, and two of the kids were locked up in a cage, and it was just like. Jesus Christ, like, they keep these two kids in a cage overnight, like a, like a tiger cage. Like, they couldn't even stand up in the cage. Mm. And so they just didn't want me to see that. And, yeah, it's hard not to judge that kind of stuff. And, and I, I don't have all... And you feel a little helpless, I think. For for me, that story was a lot of different children and, and a bigger story. But another story I did about a, a just one girl with, with Agent Orange and who was a victim of Agent Orange, but she also has a lot of other problems... That story sort of broke me down because I, as a young photographer, you think like, well, I'm going to do this story and everything's going to be fine afterwards. And maybe I, I, I was naive to believe that because I've been working on her story for seven years and we've done some small things, but it, haven't been able to change anything in the way you, you, you wanted to. And it, it, yeah, it haunts you because then you feel guilty that you did this story and, and you, not that I promised anyone you would do anything, but you just, you promised yourself and it's... Yeah, that's hard, man, because <laughs> you, you don't, it, it doesn't always work out how you want, and people don't always react to the stories the way you want them to. Yeah. So you're talking about the, is her name, like, New, or how do you say her yeah. name? New? Yeah, New, yeah. Okay. So, yeah, that project, uh, A Child in Isolation, how did that come about? Is that something that you, how did you find her, I guess? Yeah, because I was I was again looking for the same the same story. On, I, was, I wanted to do a story related to Agent Orange, but I, I was looking at different, 
I was looking at different uh, orphanages, and that one was really close to Hanoi, and I noticed that it was a lot better conditions than the other place, and I thought, well, maybe this could be a little bit more of a positive story, a positive place. But And then I saw her, I was just sort of fascinated with her because she was underneath the staircase just by herself, rocking back and forth. She's uh, severely uh, autistic. She can't see, she can't hear, um, and she can't communicate. And so she, I've never I've never come across someone sort of that isolated from the world, so I, I tried to capture that. The, the, the hard thing is you do a story like that, and while... The, I, I was way much more intimate in that story and spent a lot more time. The other story was just the more powerful because it was more graphic. So people reacted more to the Agent Orange story, Legacy of Horrors, than they have to new. So I mean, we've done some things. Basically, she was the only thing we've been able to do for her is live. She's she was. They're only supposed to live at that friendship village. It's a nice place. They get food. They have decent caretakers. They get physical therapy. But they're only supposed to live there for five years, so she was kicked out. So we raised money to help her get back into the center, but it's still not ideal. I mean, she still needs someone that, that can take care of her and at least teach her. She needs 24-hour caretaker, and she doesn't have that here, and that's really hard to get. Because as soon as I leave, they can put on the show when you show up, but as soon as you leave, you don't, you know, we, I don't know if she's brought, we're just paying for her to go to get physical therapy, so I can go every few months and check on her. And they can bring her while I'm there, but it's hard to, to know if they're taking her when we're not there. Yeah, to see it's consistent. And so you've been, so you've followed her for seven years. Yeah. Correct. Is it ongoing? Like, is that something you're still doing? Yeah, last week we just brought her back because during Tet she has to, during Tet she, the, all the kids have to go home. And so we went up there, we had to bring her back uh, from her grandparents' house to, back to the center. Uh, and her grandparents are very elderly and very, very poor and they, it's hard because at first we thought, how are they going to react to, to to her going back to the center? But they don't want to take care of her. I mean, they've told us that. They've communicated that. They can't handle taking care of her. So, yeah, uh, she gets she gets better care. You can see it. She she's eats better. She's She has other children around her while she's at the center. But there's still no way for her to communicate basic things like, I need to use the bathroom or I'm hungry. And, and there's no one there to teach her that. And at this age, I mean, now she's or she must be. 18 or 19 I think she's 19 now it's so hard to teach now at, at this age in her life so yeah we're, we're at a little bit of a standstill of what to do with her I haven't been documenting her so much as we are just trying to you know go see her and, and check on her and, and do the best we can I work with a, a Vietnamese school here and a friend of mine, she's like my, my Vietnamese mother here. She's helped me with everything since I've lived here. <laughs> you, need, you need that in a foreign country. <laughs> yeah. uh, but she's been wonderful. She's a, she teaches English at uh, primary school, and, and all of her students, she makes them uh, go on different um, charity events. And, and So she's been very helpful in organizing a lot of, a lot of things for new. So, yes, yeah, she's been great. But still, man, not, not a lot that uh, – not what I expected out of that story and not what I expected about – you know the reaction, and and but I think that at the end, it's it's you know other people don't react, but it's for me. I just I feel like a responsibility to to do something myself. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I can see how that. Yeah, is extremely hard. Um. I mean, when you're dealing, since that's that project with hers, obviously a lot longer than the Legacy of Horror project. How is that? How is your how is your how have your goals and what you're trying to communicate with new like changed over the seven years, or have they um, changed at all? 
But I haven't. I switched over and tried to do. I thought maybe because telling a story about isolation and playing around with empty space and, and trying to show that and and really experience. She does the same exact thing every single day. So you can you 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 try to come up with new things, or then you. For me, it's it's. There's, there was a shift of maybe not telling her story so much and just trying to be, maybe be part of her life a little bit. And then not to say I'm there all the time, and I definitely don't do what I, I I'm definitely uh, not a huge part of her life by any means. But but that's been sort of the the shift for me is is maybe put the camera down for a little bit and and try to figure something out, or maybe just take her for for a walk and you know because uh, touch is so important for her so just hold her hand and go on a go on the swing set and but yeah I mean I mean I'm not proud of that either I don't want to sound like I do a lot for charity because I don't go up there as much as I should I'm away on assignments half the month and and so I don't get up there that much and you know even talk with you about it now makes me feel guilty <laughs> <laughs> yeah I'm not trying to like make you feel guilty I'm <laughs> no just, I know you're yeah. not it's my own it's my own guilt and it's, yeah. it's no it's fine um but yeah I mean I've tried to do a story I thought maybe her story could be told better through through video, so that's something I'm considering. Because mm-hmm. um, I want people to feel that helplessness that she has and then maybe get someone to react. But I, I think for me now, it's just more of, you know, the pictures might not tell the story. Maybe I can go go talk to people and, and, and then show them the pictures. And then I think it, you need those two things. If someone's really going to help her, it's not money that's going to help her. That's the thing. I mean, you can raise money for her, but it doesn't do anything. It's, it's, you know, she doesn't need new clothes, she doesn't need food, she has all that stuff. She needs a one-on-one caretaker. Mm. And that just requires someone really special and someone also trained yeah. in how to look after someone with, with her with severe disabilities. Are you, with like the Agent Orange thing, or is that something that is fading for you, or do you feel like you still want to continue projects that maybe bring that issue to light, uh, since it seems to be such a hot, like, political topic? Yeah, it, it, it is, and then it is, and it comes and goes. You see people coming. There's always another photographer that comes through Vietnam and asks me about you know that center, and it goes. So it's, there's always like one major publication will do something like that a year, or one one photographer just doing a personal project on it. Um, it's it's not a story that I've continued to work on. I did a portrait series up there, and the women that worked there, but it was it wasn't what I thought. I went up there, and I thought maybe I would capture some of their. Um, yeah, I, I just try to. Uh, I'm new to doing like a portrait storytelling, so I really wanted to experiment on the women there and show that, sort of show their their life of uh, how they are. They they they're there to look after the kids, but they just do the basic stuff. They just clean the floors. They just and and I don't. It's hard to do that story without being too judgmental. So it, it's been tricky for me. I've, I went up for just two days, and it was hard to get access to because the Vietnamese are very. The first time I went up there, it wasn't a problem at all. I think because I looked younger then. <laughs> they didn't take me as serious. Now I don't look like a student anymore. So, right. and, and you know, we brought a lot of light, so they were scared. It took a lot of different phone calls, and they were mm. paranoid, and they wanted to see the pictures. And I said, I'm not going to show you every picture we do here. And so it, it's it's something I maybe want to do in a different way. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how much I'll continue with with just the the Agent Orange story as much as I will with the new story. Yeah, the. Um some of your other projects, like you worked in a, on a couple pretty also graphic things in Cambodia. Is that also kind of some early projects for you in a way? Like that the, was uh, uh, that was all assign, assignment work. Okay, like there's the crowd stampede story. Yeah. Um, that, what, that was a assignment. Happened? So what was that like? So there was just like some 
big crowd thing and they just like people got killed from stampeding? Yeah, I I I got a call from my editor about five o'clock in the morning from New York. It was a new foreign foreign desk editor. I hadn't worked with him before, so it was like I hadn't got the, that call from him yet. It was really in with the other editor, so I hadn't got the call from this guy yet. And he he was like, "Oh, do, do you know what happened?" And I said, "No, no, what." You, you feel like you wanted, like, it's like when someone wakes you up and they say, did I wake you up? And you say no. Like, I wanted to pretend like I knew what happened, but I didn't know what happened. I just woke <laughs> up. So I'm like, oh, yeah, uh, no, wait, what? What happened? <laughs> so, so, so uh, you know, he, he yeah, he's like, a horrible stampede happened in, in, in Phnom Penh. Um, it was during the water festival, so that means millions of people come to the city for this festival and and, and party and and hang out by the along the riverside and i guess a lot of people were going over the one of the new bridges there and I, i'm not sure exactly how someone got spooked but all of a sudden there was a the stampede happened and and over 300 people died so i got called to mm. i i got called for the new york times said the writer was already on his way there he was coming from bangkok the problem coming from hanoi is is there's not a ton it's not a great hub there's not a lot of flight options so it's funny like a new york editors he, he just he was a wire guy so his thing was just oh just just head to the airport right now and, and just figure it out and i thought okay i mean he, he's like if i were you i'd be already on the way to the airport I'm like well you know I, i've got my assistant she can call and and check on and see what flight options because there's, there's just not there's probably like an afternoon flight and then another flight and there's not options to connect and it's not like that so but I didn't want him to think I was, you know, sort of messing up. So I just, okay, okay. So, but the the first, it was hard. We went to the airport and and figured out a way to connect. And I got there at, I think I got in at four o'clock. And I, I rushed to the hotel to meet the writer because he had his fixture on the ground there already, who had already been dealing with him, knew exactly where to go. He was starting to file his story, and so basically I threw my bags in in my room and the the the. The fixture just took me straight to the hospital where there was just bodies everywhere and and had to shoot for two hours and file for the the you know the New York Times sister paper the IHT so I had to file for their deadline and then go back out and shoot and file for you know went there and shot for two hours and then went back out after I filed shot again for the New York Times deadline for that evening so yeah that was one of those times where like you said it's it's like it's tough to really process what's happening right there until you're looking at the pictures and you're captioning pictures of dead people and people looking for their lost family members and that was that was horrible that's the first time i've ever seen that much death and and it's weird you feel weird shooting that stuff I, I, you just feel sort of mixed about it it's it's kind of hard to you know you're there to do a job but at the same time you I, i'm not i'm not an aggressive photographer at all and I, and i like to earn space between my subjects and 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 I respect people that that do it the other way. It's just it's just what I'm comfortable with. Um, and so uh, Cambodia is such a friendly place. It's the opposite is of sort of uh, of what you would think. Or you go to a hospital. Like I didn't even have to. Like they were just like telling me where to go right away. And a police officer was like, I was trying to take a natural picture of a woman, and I didn't want her. To, I just wanted to leave her alone. But I was trying to capture a moment of her looking for uh, one uh, her her sister and. The policeman stopped her and told her to stand there and hold the picture, and 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 he's like trying to position her to, so mm -hmm. she can, and she's just uh, uh, like trying to do it too. And I'm like, no, just uh, no, to stop it. I don't need you to do that. Just go about. And I'm really sorry. I felt really awful, but yeah. it's just sort of the Cambodians way. And you have to be careful of that stuff. In well, I feel that way in Southeast Asia. Is just that you know sometimes people just defer to you as a foreigner when you're shooting stuff and just trust you and and 
So I think there's a big responsibility there is is to not take advantage of that. Mm. At yeah. Vietnam, it could be the opposite. Vietnam, you could, you're, you're you know you're told you're told you can't take a picture at a market because someone just doesn't isn't in a good mood. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> totally opposite. Um, yeah. It's justified paranoia in the in the north of Vietnam. I understand why they're right. like that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that re- I mean that's I can imagine it being hard. I mean because flipping through that story i mean like the the image that really s- strikes me is like the the image of like the woman on the floor like she's like crying out you know next to like mm. this dead part i don't know if it's like her husband or who it's her sister she just okay. uncovered her sister yeah and so she's just having this like pure gut you know hellish kind of reaction you know yeah of mourning um and you're there just shooting that and so i can imagine it's hard I don't. I would feel like should I shoot this? Should I not shoot this? But like you're supposed to because you're on a job. Like, yeah, you know, it's like the hardest moment of her life, probably. You know. Sure. Um, I, I I think what, what the the process is that you don't want to interfere and you don't want to uh, participate in her moment. You want to stand back and you know. I for something like that, there wasn't a lot of photographers there, so it, it felt. I, I guess I would have felt worse if there was a lot of photographers there and, and sort of in her way, but. And sometimes you just make that eye contact with people and, and just sort of, you can say a lot with, with eye contact of just like, you know, politely, like they understand what you're doing. And and, and I think you if, if you have a friendly look to them and you can say a lot in one look that you, and, and I, I've sort of made eye contact with her earlier and I, I think she, she understood. If people aren't comfortable, I'll step even farther back. Yeah. Yeah, because it reminds me of like, oh man, I mean, when like the the earthquake happened in Haiti, and that would just raise so much controversy with, yeah, all the photographers that flocked down there just to shoot, you know, the carnage and the death, and you know, um, it was just it was just too much, too many people, you know. Yeah, um, and then you like to think that all right, well, this is a bigger like this is a story you're going to bring attention to some bigger thing because at the time you don't know at the time we you know we didn't know why the stamping happened it could have we didn't know if there was a problem with the bridge or so you, you you try to justify it in your head saying well this is a this could lead to a bigger story and bring a, attention to something that needs to be fixed and, and images of, of powerful moments can can bring attention to that but for this story it really didn't actually become a bigger story mm. so i mean that so you feel a little more guilty maybe but i my thing is yeah i, I just i don't if I don't want them. If they become aware of me, then I'm not doing my job well. And I think I think that for that case, she she wasn't aware of me, so I felt okay. Yeah. Um. And then like the what's up with the addiction in Cambodia story? I mean, was that just also another hired story for you to do that? Yeah. Yeah. It was just it was a, the times again. It was uh, working with a great writer. Uh, really lucky to work with one of their staff writers of the years. He's it's it's a rare thing these days. I don't, I, in the U.S., I'm sure it still happens, but here, like I, I just get briefs. I don't get to team up with the writers often, and but with him, we were teamed up a lot. I think for, for I'm going to sound like a like a um, uh, promoting the New York Times a lot, but I just I love that they do that on a lot of stories. I love that we we get to go out and tell stories together because I learned a lot from him. Uh, the writer is uh, Seth Midens. He just retired, but he still works with them. But yeah, I mean, he he got access to a lot of these stories, and and that story was there was a report about. Um, Sort of abuse in the drug, the drug rehab centers, and so we had to go in and get access through an NGO that was working there. And the NGO actually had a problem with another New York Times writer 
so she didn't want to let us get access and then hmm. and then so he had to have an interview with her and then I had to talk to her about taking pictures because even being interviewed she wasn't okay with it so we we did something where we promised not to show the, the people whose faces are the, the lighting is very dramatic we you know we did a couple portraits for her and showed her that and showed the people and they were okay with it and you know, sort of earned her trust a little bit, but she was definitely very defensive, and I understand she was protective. Um, and then we, you know, it's just, it's hard, because you have two days to get into an intimate story, or sometimes one day, and so we, you know, we, we luckily met another guy there that was, like, took us around to where the heroin addicts shoot up, and, you know, funny, there's two two white guys in the middle of this area where heroin addicts are shooting up and drug deals are going down, and then the word word must have got around quickly, because like all of a sudden, thirty police officers showed up and made it look like they actually controlled that area. But it was all just a show. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that that was a that was a tough story. I think you just you, you get access because you you don't have a choice. You can't come back without access, so you find a way to, to do it. And a lot of that's not to the credit of myself; it's to the credit of a a good fixer. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, looking at like all of your work. One of the things that um, one of the people that actually follow Musea and I was asking about like um, what questions do you want me to ask you and um, he brought up a good point uh, which was that you you also shoot you have like this this really hard stories you have to tell but then you also shoot things like these commercial projects of like really nice resorts and then even (laughs) even. And then to contrast that, you even shoot like weddings, you know, which yeah, is almost yeah. like this opposite scale. And it's hard to find photographers that have really have had, you know, experience in both areas. So what, I mean, what is that like for you bouncing between like the opposite ends of like the human condition? You know, most people don't get to feel that. Yeah, it's it's really bizarre. It's a good question. It's extremely <laughs> bizarre. I think, I think. It hit me once, and I just had a crazy week where I was like, wow, what the hell am I doing? This is so strange. Like, I went from photographing death to photographing a story where I had to, like, take pictures of a sandwich, and then, like, the next day, photograph a wedding. Yeah. Like, it was just such a weird roller coaster. I actually found when I started doing weddings, it was for money, and then now I do it, and I, I know people say this, and maybe they don't mean it, but I sincerely love it. I shoot weddings, and it's... It's a nice break from what I have to do. I love, I love the, I love the challenge of every aspect of photography, all these different things, and I like, I love the variety. And then the hardest thing was branding those three things separately and together, so to tie them all together. But, but for me, shooting a wedding, it's such a nice break from from a couple of years of photographing uh, tragedy and, and sad stories. And not that I, I don't want, not that I want to get away from that. I still like that, but. It's just a nice contrast. And, you know, weddings were... Vietnam's a tough place to work. Vietnam, it, people are naturally want to say no to you. The first answer is no. I mean, you, they're hard people here. They're good people. They're hard people. You have to earn their trust, and they've been through a lot. So you understand why. But, you, you know, it, I'll go to a restaurant and just need to take pictures, and they're just trying... They're, they're saying no. Where, you know, if, if it was the New York Times coming to a restaurant in the U.S., they'd, they'd roll out the red carpet for you. Yeah. <laughs> so so to, to shoot a wedding where everybody wants you there, people... Uh, you know, people people smiling, people are happy. It's a joyous occasion. It's a nice break, mm. and you actually get nice emails back from people. Where editors <laughs> just say, Ed- "Editors, yeah, got the pictures done. Good. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're lucky to even get that. You know. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even know you got the pictures. Thanks. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Here you get. So it's good if you if you if you need a pat in the back of once in a while. Weddings are great. Right. Right. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm curious because so what came first for you? Was it these more hearts, like the heart stories came, and then the weddings came later? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I started doing weddings just out of a out of request from friends. I mean, it's just one of those things I think yeah. that happens to all of us. You know, <laughs> hey, yeah. you're a photographer, you must shoot weddings too, right? Shoot, my but mind. I didn't start. Yeah, I didn't start really branding it until two years ago, and it's been a lot of fun. I mean, for me, it's really exciting for me the biggest switch for my business is going from a it was switching from a, just thinking of yourself as a freelancer to thinking of yourself as a business owner that was the biggest switch that happened for me maybe uh two years ago and 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 really more so a year ago is is hiring staff to work for you and, and presenting yourself as a business owner not a freelancer so people take you serious people for my wedding business and editorial, that doesn't matter so much. I mean, it's more on your reputation and more on your connection with editors. But for for commercial work and for for weddings, it's been a huge, huge switch. And and working with a good graphic designer that's helped me out with a lot of stuff, um, and then helping me think about my business and how to how I want to re- represent my business and why we're different. And it's been huge. There's so many photographers that work out here that that have they're extremely talented, but they don't. They don't present their business that way, or they present it like they're not confident about it. They're not. They're, they're just a photographer who maybe does this, maybe does that. Whereas I think our business now is we have our promotional materials. We, I have staff that knows that's educated and talking about our product and what we do and, and everything from like the, the first email we get to from the clients to the the final pitch and to the delivery of the product. It's it's changed everything for me. Mm. I'm, I don't know. I mean, because I. Museum and stuff, we deal a lot probably with like wedding photography here, obviously in the United States and everything. Um, and a lot of people that, a lot of photographers I know, they deal a lot with just, you know, the subject matter is, you know, love and happiness and relationships and all that. Um, but they don't, you know, they don't dive into maybe personal work, but that maybe is on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, like you're doing. Yeah, sure, do, you think, sure. do you think there's like a benefit to having a. a to doing something that's really opposite uh, Abs- of what you're used to versus just being stuck in a, the same mindset all the time? Absolutely. I think, I think you know, I, I have portraits in my head for commercial shoots be- that are just sort of built into my mind because I've shot them at a wedding or vice versa. And, you know, I just, oh, this is the scene I'm dealt with. Oh, especially hotels because you shoot in a hotel and you sort of know where you like the light and then... People are always for weddings. It's all destination weddings out here, so they're getting ready at the hotel. So you you have all the shots in your mind, and and then personal work is where you can fail and you can try new things. I think it's easy to get stale in your photography. I know a lot of people get caught in saying, "Well, this is my style, and that's it, and that's what I do." But I I like to grow and I like to try different things, and so I think a personal project is the only time where you can you can try and fail, which I I try to do as much as possible. Uh, not, I don't try to fail, but I try, I try to get out there and, yeah. and try new things. And, and you just can't do that. I can't fail at a wedding. I can't fail on a, on a assignment. And so I think that's the fun part. I think when you allow yourself to do that, I think, and especially when you work on a personal project of the same things happening over and over and over again, like I, I'm doing a little bit of teaching now at, at some documentary workshops around Southeast Asia. And I think uh, like I teach some of my students when you really, they say, oh, I'm really bored with the, this, or I, I think I have all the shots I'm going to get. I'm like, no, you just spend time, and, and creativity will be will be born out of boredom sometimes, you know, because you, you, we all have those shots in your head, your 10 shots that you think are good, but you think you're good, you think they're good, and your friends think they're good, or maybe they're passable, or maybe they're okay, but it, if you want to grow, 
you got to stop doing those shots and work on and try some new things as well, or or even try to enhance those and try to layer your shots. I think I think where you can get stuck as a photographer is when you just become okay with your work all the time. Yeah, I hate my work every time I turn it. <laughs> <laughs> that, so for some, I'm starting to think that that uh, idea of like if a photographer hates their work, I'm starting to think that's like a healthy thing. But so, uh. <laughs> it's good, good and bad, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it, you get stressed on. on uh, I get stressed on assignments because you always think like, okay, I'm in I'm in Thailand, and I'm based in Vietnam. So there's another photographer in Thailand who's like, well, I should have got that job. I'm better than him. So I, I, it's just like an internal competitor thing uh, that I have in me from from playing sports when I was younger. Like, well, I I need to earn this because I don't want I don't, I don't want that photographer, you know, thinking that he should have got it. And <laughs> it's, it's stupid. It doesn't make sense, but it yeah. drives me to stay a couple extra hours longer or get up early and. All that stuff, and then you you know out here it's funny you get the email from people all the time after I shoot a story and maybe it's in like Phuket and then I'll get a photographer that says hey I liked your work in Phuket by the way I'm based in Bangkok I'm a lot closer can I have your editor's contact <laughs> like no like no why would I do that <laughs> you're welcome to try to take my work but I'm not going to help you do it <laughs> yeah yeah wow um, I would love to get some advice from you on how do you tell good stories. Um, I think that's something that we all need to learn to do a better job of, especially if you're, you know, shooting a wedding or any sort of documentary project. Yeah, I think. Oh, it's a it's a good question. How do you tell better stories? I think it, it's. I think you put more time than you think you should. I think you know, in in Vietnam, I, there's a lot of young photographers who go into a story and they spend two days on it, and that's their biggest problem is they don't get to know their subject, or they go in just thinking they know the the story is this. I think you let the story unfold. And and you're just there, and you're patient, and you watch. And then I think you, you know, as you're crafting your story, you're looking at it. You should be looking at it all the time before you go out in a shoot. You should be looking at your edit. And and I think I think it's just as important the way you sequence a story as it is to what pictures you're going to take. I mean, think about how one picture is going to go to the next picture. And we can jump in photography like you know we can't. We don't have to transition as smoothly as you do in video, but you do need to transition. Or or one picture, you know, two pictures. Bookmarking another picture can can say a lot more if they work well together. So I think mm-hmm. it's really I think a lot of people. Oh, I, I shouldn't say a lot. My the students that I've worked with, I find they don't think of that at all. Not during the process and not after the process. Or or they just try to think about it after they're done with the story. And I think that's you know it, that, that that's the wrong way to look at it. I mean, yeah, you can maybe puzzle it together, but it, you should be thinking it through the whole way. What what am I trying to say? How how do I want to introduce this story? And 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 I think looking at looking at directors and looking at movies that you like and how they tell stories and and you know not stealing but borrowing some ideas from some of them as well. You know, yeah. like like I think you know, telling stories with details and, and I don't think it has to be so formulaic and so linear. I think like when I get a young student come do one of our workshops, they'll. It's always like, well, he gets up, so I have to get a shot of him waking up, and then it has to be a night shot. Like, no, you don't, you don't have to end with a night shot. You don't have to start with a morning shot. It doesn't have to be so linear. I, I want them to be just as creative as with each picture as they are with also the way they're sequencing the pictures. I think that's a that's a great way to enhance your stories is to really experiment with different edits and show your work. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I'm shy showing my personal projects because they mean a lot to me, so I, I don't like to share it with someone that I don't know intimately, but. I think it's 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 extremely beneficial, and don't just share it with other photographers because we're all trained to sort of think a certain way, and we've all read the same articles. And so show it to show it to other people too, and see, you know I think it's a good exercise. A friend of mine was just getting ready for Foundry, and he had me 
go through his, his uh, edit, and it was just important to say, you know, show it to people and then ask them what's, what questions are they left with. You know, ask them those kind of questions. Like, have a set of questions that you ask people after look at. Are they left with some questions? Do you want them to be left with those questions? Maybe you do. Maybe you want a little mystery. Um, are the, what mood are they left with? So did you succeed with that? Uh, all those things. I think, I think it's important to really analyze. And then go back and shoot more and more and more because the story will can constantly change and constantly develop and you'll learn new things about yourself, too. Mm. I'm trying to think of like, because when you get, obviously you get a brief from the New York Times or whoever, or some magazine or something, uh, they obviously kind of have a story, maybe kind of somewhat outlined for you that they want to take, you know, the writers, writing about this, whatever. But with like a personal project, you don't necessarily have that, so you have to come up kind of with your own brief, or you have to figure out what the story is for yourself that you want to tell. Mm-hmm. So many photographers I know, they kind of struggle with... Where do they start with personal projects? Like they want to do it, but they just don't. They're kind of paralyzed by finding a starting point. So, mm-hmm. like if you're doing like a documentary project, how have you found that? What helps you find a story that you want to tell? Does that make sense? Yeah. Is there something that it, you use? It, yeah, I, I think. Okay, I, I think when you're a young photographer, the the biggest mistake you can make, I think, is to tell a story with sort of like winning a contest in mind and it, it's I see why people do it because our the industry for editorial for photography is you know for documentary it's news and stuff like that it's built on these awards right so then you think the only way I can succeed the only way I can get the kind of work that I want to get is to win these awards but I think where you'll go wrong is if you're if you're telling a story with that in mind you're not doing justice to your subject all the time and you're also you're not going to be interested in it if you're not inter- if you are interested and it wins an award, that's great. But if you're if you're just doing it for the sake of, oh, that that would be a good topic for to, next year because I haven't seen that. That'll be that'll that that'll work well for uh, POI or or uh, or uh, World Press. And I think a lot of people do that because it's not necessarily their fault, but it's just the way the industry is built. It's it's you people think that you need to win first place or win this award to to get work. And so you see all these stories sort of repeating themselves. I think if you, it sounds cliche, but it's like, you know, I've had teachers tell me that. It's like, look out your own backyard or look for a story that's close to you. Look for something that you, you're curious about. And I think if you care about it, you'll keep working on it. And if you're curious about it, you'll keep exploring it. I, I, but it, it's easy. You can see, it's easy why you can see the temptation of going for that story for awards because our, our, our industry is very award driven. Yeah. When you when you start on a personal project, do you feel like you've because you mentioned earlier about um kind of finding the story. I mean, do you when you pick a personal project, trying to think how to say this, um, do you feel like you've got do you know what the story is going in for the most part, or do you kind of go in pretty blind and then you discover it as you're there? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. I, I think it can. You can go in with an idea, and sometimes it is that, and then you just have to. I think you can go in and, and be open to another story. I've, I, I've started so many stories the last couple of years that I haven't really gone a little bit deeper with because it, it, either I've lost interest or I I haven't had time because I'm, I'm I've sold out. <laughs> no, I, I just I I think uh, yeah, I think for and also visually, like yeah, a story you can. You can reach a plateau and then maybe get over that, but every once in a while, it's, it's that's it. Like this isn't you're not going to get 
what you want out of that. Like a, a, a good example is like I've had a, a student will come to me and have a story about this amazing person who's does amazing things, but it, they don't do them visually, so it's just not going to work. And so her story just ends because it's the the things that this woman she does is it's things on the phone and, and donating money, but those aren't powerful pictures of her on the phone. You know, m- making things happen. Yeah. So I think uh, you can think the story is going to be great and visual, and then it's just not. I think I've gone into some stories, and I thought I thought of it one way, and it's 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 gone another way, or just being open to, it, or it's just not the story I want, and you have to sort of cut ties with that story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm I'm still searching. I've got like a bunch of stories in my mind that I want to do. It's just a matter of getting around to doing them. <laughs> No, I think that's great, though. I mean, I think um, even if you applied that to even, like, weddings, I think it's great to go into, like, a, a day uh, open to what is going to happen and what the story yeah. is. I think there's a lot of – the temptation is – and I've done this with my own work in the past is you go in and you're like, I'm going to run this client through my formula system. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going to produce this consistent thing that I always produce for all my clients. Uh, but you kind of miss the uniqueness of the people, the family, the relationships, all that stuff. So you kind of miss the, really, the story that's really there because you're not like mm. open, open to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So I think that's a good point. Anytime you're in sort of any sort of documentary type, you know, event, just yeah, or you even, stay open. You even get- yeah, and you even get people. I mean, it's easy to, for weddings. It's if you have two photographers, it's a lot easier to be open. You can you can make some mistakes. You can have your second shooter. All right, get the obvious, and you can work on some other things. So mm-hmm. that's a nice that's a nice thing about weddings is you you have a little. It's pressure too. I mean, you have a lot more freedom. But uh, weddings are funny. I think I think it used to have a, a such of a, a negative vibe if you said you shot weddings, and I think it's it's different. I got I started working with the New York Times because the the business editors liked my wedding portfolio. Oh, nice. I was afraid to show her. I didn't think she wanted to see that. I was sort of like, oh, I don't, I don't know if I have any. And I had a whole wedding website. And she said, you know what? If you can shoot a wedding under pressure, you can shoot anything that I'm going to hire you for. Wow. <laughs> but that was cool. great. Never yeah. heard that before. <laughs> yeah, you don't hear stories like that. Most people don't show their wedding stuff. So even still, I guess. no, I was afraid. I, I yeah. had it on my site, and I tried to bury it. Like before, I went to all these meetings, and she was. She asked me that. She was a business section. She's the one that she she sent me to all these. She sent me to Australia, Malaysia, and Indonesia all in a couple of months because I, I I I didn't know if she was impressed by that work. She she said she was, but then I didn't hear it for a couple of months, and then all of a sudden she contacted me. But yes, yeah, she told me. She said, "I do look at I look at photographers that shoot weddings, and if they, you know, I, I, if they can deal with brides, they can deal with anything I'm going to give them." So, <laughs> I said, "Cool, that's awesome." But yeah, I, I think for weddings it's interesting because I, you know, I, I try to do some some moody stuff and maybe some artistic stuff or what I think is artistic stuff, and you have clients that really love it and they like it, or they like it but they don't want you to do it for their wedding. It's a right. weird thing. It's yeah. bizarre. Like, I've had someone say to me before a recent wedding, like. Yeah. Okay. Just before, uh, just before the wedding, just want to let you know, like, we like those shots of out of focus and all that, but we don't want them for our wedding. <laughs> okay. Like, <laughs> I don't understand. That's a polite way of saying like, just do do the other stuff. Stick to the action and stick to some of the moments. So don't get too artistic on us. <laughs> yeah. We just want something simple. I, it's good. It actually, taught me to, to talk to my clients now and say, hey, pick out some of the, your favorite photos and pick out your least favorite, so I can say I can sort of customize my style a little bit to, to suit your style. Mm. 
That's interesting. Um, <laughs> a couple more questions, then I'll let you off the hook. <laughs> um, sure. No, this is great. I hope I'm not too boring. <laughs> no, no. I just want to keep you for hours and hours. Um, uh, I would love some advice because I know of some photographers that um, would really like to work with like NGOs. That's like something they're kind of passionate about. So, what advice do you have for kind of getting in with NGOs and doing some work for them? Oh, that's a great question. In Southeast Asia, you, you you work a ton with NGOs, and there's great projects, and it's I think it's a great way to start your career because you really get to work on. You have the the hardest part is getting access and learning the story, and NGOs already do, have done the work for you. They know the story. Um, the problem with it is there's different types of NGO work. There's NGO work where they're going to let you go in and do your story. That's the ideal work is that's what a lot of young photographers think. That's what I thought is you, all oh, right, this, they're doing this project on clean water. You're going to go into this village and you're just going to tell the story about clean water the best you can. In, but in reality, they want you to show up and show that the, their director is shaking hands with the guy, the, the, <laughs> the leader of the village, and then they need a close-up shot of the water pump. And then they need something with the logo. Uh, I mean, it's it's so it's. I think uh, sounds more commercial. It, <laughs> it, 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 it can be. I mean, I've yeah. been told by one of the biggest biggest NGOs in the world one time that I took a picture of a lady and she was a, a benefactor of their program and they told she they told me that she she was too ugly for the cover and so I had to go back and shoot someone different. Oh. I'm like, you fucking serious? <laughs> like she's. She's like one of the three people in the village that, yeah, but she's old and she only had one eye. I'm like, yeah, but it, that's what she, that's her, she only has that one eye. What's wrong with that? Yeah. <laughs> Why it's is that really, a problem? Yeah. Oh, she, well, she wasn't, she wasn't pretty enough for the cover. I'm like, well, if you wanted me to rent a model, we could do this differently. But <laughs> I, I think, I think getting in with NGOs, there, there's, uh, uh, it's, it's always a tricky question because a lot of veteran photographers will get mad if you give away your work and, in, in, in trade for access, and I think that's easy to say once you've got once you've worked a lot. It's easy to say, oh, don't ever do that. But it, when you're first starting and you want to get into something, it's tricky. I think I think if you really had a project that you wanted to work a little bit on your own, then maybe you could trade access for a little bit. But I wouldn't give away all your work because I think even then later on they won't value your your time either. So you you know I think you can if you're brand new. I think charging a, a a reduced rate, or even hopefully no NGOs are listening to this, is you know mark up mark up your prices ten percent and then give them a ten percent discount. <laughs> or I mean, I think that's a common thing a lot of photographers do here. They say they give an NGO rate and so they charge a little bit less. But you, you surpri- be surprised when I mean, NGOs they they I I had a weird feeling about it when I first started shooting. I'm like, oh, should I charge money for it? Or or you know they're doing such nice things. I feel like an asshole charging money. But I emailed uh, Ron Habib from uh, Seven, and he just gave me some great advice. He's like, "They're a business too," and that was the best advice that I ever got. He's like, "They're a business too, and you're a business, and you need to survive too." So if if they need pictures, you should value your time. Make them value your time. Make them value your work. And and I, I that that was a big switch for me because then I was confident in charging them. And I think with that confidence, you. I think if you're iffy when when you're dealing with an email exchange with someone. And yeah, they're not going to feel confident in paying you, but uh, you know they have a lot of them have day rates. But I think it's important for you to know a contract and to understand, you know, what what your rates are, what their rates are, how they're going to use the pictures, and yeah, maybe a discounted price if it's something you're interested in or something you want to you're going to want to work further. But a lot of NGOs here, there's so many that will contact me and say, hey, can you do this story for us for three days, and we'll pay for you to get there. I'm like, well, no, that like I, I appreciate what you're doing, but. No, I can't <laughs> because because that's my time and that's my money and I'm interested in your story and and but 
I, I think, and I think people have that. I think the misconception is that NGOs don't have any money. They do. I mean, I I live in a community in Vietnam where a lot of NGO uh, people live, and they have nice cars, and they have three thousand dollar apartments, so they have money. Right. <laughs> so, so it, it's it's up to the photographer to be able to to persuade them to allocate that money towards. <laughs> towards shooting, and and that's not always what you think. So, like, you know, charge them because if you if if you are going to end up taking those commercial type photos, you're not going to be happy with your work that much either. I mean, maybe you need money to get by and it's an assignment, but you're not going to be that thrilled about those shots. So, get paid for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So you've got you know these three websites going on. Yes. <laughs> so if you could pick, <laughs> if you could only run one of them. Is like your uh, favorite, your whole career. Well, which one would it be? Oh my goodness! No, but but do I have to factor everything in, or do I have to? Uh, I'll tell you what. I mean, yeah, you make a living off of uh, of weddings, commercial work. But at my 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 gut feeling and, and my background, and the reason I got into photography is is editorial photography, and I love it. If it, it was a sustainable business all on its own, that would be great. I would just do that. Um, so yeah, if I could just do one, I'd live a little. I'd, I couldn't have my office I have now if I just did editorial photography. So I'd have to go back to a smaller place. But <laughs> I, would, I would just do that if I had to do one because I love that excitement. Editorial also covers a lot. I mean, yeah. I got Southeast Asia. You're privileged to, to to fly to different countries and do some fun assignments. I think if I was in San Francisco, I'd be at the back of the line and, and probably only be able to do stories in San Francisco. Where whereas here, I get to. I, you know, I went to Myanmar last year, Bangladesh, and, and Cambodia, and Thailand, and it's fun. I, I, I love that excitement of, of you know, I, I get anxiety in every single shoot, but I love that. I think that anxiety makes me perform better, mm. and I love the thrill. Yeah, adrenaline rush. <laughs> it, it is, and it's adrenaline rush even for a, a simple travel story because again, it's you you were hired to do this. This story is going to reach a huge number of people, so you, you want to nail it. Mm. Uh, last one is just some photographers that have influenced you the most. Oh, that's a good question. I think uh, um, James Noctway, definitely one of the first photographers that I looked at his work and I, I, I said, wow, like, I'd love to reach that level. When I, I told you earlier, I walked into Time and I saw his covers in Time magazine on you know big printouts in the, in the lobby and I thought, yeah, I'd love to work for Time. And and uh, so he was a big influence. And when I started, it was all those guys. It was it's a different group of guys now, but a lot of the guys from Seven and, and Magnum. Um, Gary Knight was just an influence personally because I loved the way that he talked about photography. He's very intelligent about talking about it. Very intelligent about making. He's a good, really good teacher, which is doesn't always translate well. I mean, he's an amazing photographer, but he's also a really good teacher. So the way that he got me to think about my work a little bit deeper and the way that he got me to think about doing documentary work and using one lens and slowing down a lot. So he was a huge influence on me. I mean, every time I get a chance to, to thank that guy, I wouldn't say we're close. I barely see him. I'll see him every once in a while, but he, he was really nice and really helpful. And I try to, I try to pass that on if I can to some of my students, but I'm, I'm nowhere near the teacher that he is. But so yeah, he's been a huge influence on me. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thanks so much for, um, taking the time to chat with me appreciate it uh, big fan Thank of your, you. your work and I love talking to people and doing different stuff so first uh, first interview with somebody that's living in Vietnam so that's cool <laughs> <laughs> cool well, well I hope uh, the listeners enjoy this and I hope it wasn't too boring for them and oh, no. and I appreciate I appreciate you having me on man this is really cool <laughs>